people about God. Rather, he spoke to God about the people. I asked you last weekend to imagine that we're eavesdropping on this conversation. It's raw and it's unfiltered. It's like a journal entry. And this man is embracing God and his character, but he's also questioning it. He's wrestling with God. And we looked at that last week of his complaint. This man, Habakkuk, looked at his nation and he had grave concern for the state of the union, the state of the land. He used six words, we learned, six different terms to describe what was happening in the world of his day. Destruction and violence, strife and contentions, wickedness and perversion. And to these six terms, to this reality in which he looked, he looked above, he looked heavenward and asked two questions we said are central to the human experience. He asked a question, do you remember why and how long? Why is a question like Job and like the psalmist, like those in poetry and the prophets, the wisdom literature of the Bible and law and history and even in the Messiah himself, the, that question why? Why, why? why this, God? Why this? And he asked the question, how long? We learned last week that 65 times in the Bible this question is asked, how long? I turned your attention to the psalmist in the 13th Psalm where he asked the question, How long? How long will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I wrestle with my thoughts? How long will the enemy triumph over me? God, how long? And into this complaint that Habakkuk offers God in Habakkuk 1, we see God's answer to his complaint. So let's pick up in chapter 1. We'll look at verse 5 and then later some other verses. Look among the nations. What do we call in this sermon series? That very title. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. That sounds awesome, right? I mean, Habakkuk's in a bad situation. And then, bam, look at what God's going to do. What a, what a precious promise. Look, I'm kind of old, and I've lived a good while, and I've seen this verse ripped straight out of context and put on some card or something, and it just looks good. Look at what God's going to do. Things are bad, and there's no way God would let things get worse, would he? I mean, if things are bad, he's going to bring good. He's going to bring good right when it's timely, right when it's needed, but not so fast. We see that there are times when bad turns to worse. When we look at violence, like we learned, you left church last week just like I did and learned about a new mass shooting. And we look at violence and we say, well, it's going to get better. It's going to get better. And here, like maybe in our day, it's getting worse. And look at what Habakkuk says. This is not flowery precious promise this is deeper this is it getting worse he wanted salvation and rescue but he got warning and judgment for behold i'm raising up the chaldeans let me stop there some of your english translations for those of you who opened up a bible will say the babylonians those are synonymous the chaldeans is a subset a group of babylonians who lived in the southern portion of mesopotamia we're going to use them interchangeably i'll probably uh pick up with about babylonians but for behold i'm raising up the chaldeans the balbobian bow Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. They are dreaded and they're fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than lepers, more fierce than evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. 
They all call, come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, they, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. This, a vivid description of the Chaldeans, of the Babylonians. This vivid language which, which depicts them as their, their horses and their, their troops are uh, like eagles and like lepers and like evening wolves and desert winds. They're violent people. They mock authority. They take captives. They invade Jerusalem. They, they jeer. They taunt their enemies. They worship themselves. It's almost like Nick Saban in Alabama, but even more evil. They're just full of themselves. They run and rape and pillage and have their way at all times. They take from you. They steal. They hurt you. They make you bitter when you try to worship. But far more serious, we learn about these people. We learn about their invasion of Jerusalem in 2 Kings 25 when their leader, Nebuchadnezzar, leads them to this onslaught. And he came up on a man named Zebekiah. And this man, he, right before his very eyes, kills his sons one by one in front of him and gouges out his eyes. This is cruelty and injustice at its lowest. And here in the midst of this, there is this man of old, saying, God, why do you look the other way? Why do you look the other way? One of his contemporaries, Nahum, another prophet, asked the central question, how can God love and judge? That's a, that's a popular question among young people today. How can God love and judge? But Habakkuk's question is different. How can God love and not judge? Let's continue reading. Let's finish up the first chapter here, 12 through 17. Are you not from everlasting O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you look idly? Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea. Here's the ultimate of blaming God, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? In Habakkuk 1.3, he asks, Why, Lord? Why do I have to see iniquity? Why do you look the other way? And in verse 13, he asked the question twice again, Lord, why do, why do you look at the traitors? And why do you remain silent? When you were young, like me, you were sold a bill of goods, a load of bunk. And it went like this. Cheaters never prosper, and liars are always caught. Do you believe that? Let me drop some biblical truth on you because the, Solomon taught in Proverbs and Jesus teaches in Luke. Let's, let's, let, me, let me show you Proverbs 10, 24. What the wicked dread will overtake them, what the righteous desire will be granted. You just don't want to be among the wicked, ultimately. But eventually, you never know. Luke chapter 8, a stirring passage for our day. 
a stirring passage for every heart in this room, a stirring passage for Louis C.K. and Harvey Weinstein and too many men to mention. For there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought about or brought out into the open. Does that scare you a little bit? Don't shake your head yes. All right. You're going to look bad. But like you've done wrong, haven't you? And I've done wrong. And there's just things about ourselves that we don't want others to know. And God gives his people these gifts of confession and repentance. He teaches us the metaphors of darkness and light and how to move into the light. It's better that we move into the light. Listen, it's better that you move your life into the light and let him root out that stuff in you and cleanse you from your sin. It's better, but there's a promise that ultimately things are going to be brought into the light. But we learn from this prophet of old that in fact cheaters seem to not get caught. That the wicked do seem to prosper. And he brings this before God. Why? Why? This morning, I want to give you four important distinctions. Four areas that I want you to be able to, to recognize the difference. And the first is this. The first is, we'll put them up. The first is the difference between this day and that day. What was Habakkuk's day? Destruction, violence, strife, contention, wickedness, perversion. What is our day? Truly, last Sunday when we were in here, a shooter went into a church, Central Standard Time, 1137, and began shooting people. And that gets me. Does it get you? Do you bring that to God? Do you wrestle with God about that? Anybody? Everybody. That gets me because it's a shooting. Gets to me because it's a church shooting, a place that's supposed to be a place of safety and sanctuary. It gets to me because it's a shooting. It's a shooting in a church. It gets to me when I learn the victims. One of them is a 16-year-old girl named Haley. I have a 16-year-old named Haley. Like, that gets to me. And we take that to God. There is this day. How do you make sense of that? How do you make sense of this day? In a moment, not yet, but in a moment, we're going to put a slide up, and it'd be a good slide to take a picture of if you have your phone out for understanding, for questioning later. But the scripture does give us some realities about evil in the world today. It gives us perspective. Now, we can take it or leave it, believe it or not, believe it or reject it. But scripture tells us some realities of evil in our world. Scripture teaches us that he permits it. He, he teaches us that he'll give people up to their own devices. He permits evil. He punishes evil. He brings good out of evil. Read the story of Joseph and his brothers in Genesis 50, 20. He brings good out of evil. And he uses evil to teach and test and discipline those that he loves. But the promise that we cling to is that one day... He'll redeem his people from all evil. Look at it, if you would, on the screen. He permits it. He punishes it. He brings good out of it. He uses it to test and discipline us. 
And I know, I know, it sounds at times like a nursery rhyme, a fairy tale, a a lullaby, just something that's just too nice to believe. But I cling to this promise that he's going to make it all right. He says so in his word. How do you make sense of this day? We have to look around and see things are being permitted that you don't have love unless you have free will. And we see this permission. We see people being given over to their own devices, their Vain imaginations, Romans 1 says, is darkened their minds. Sin affects every one of us. Sin affects every part of us. And we see it. He saw it in his day. And we see it in ours. But we long for that day. And can I just say that that day is not this day. And this day is not that day. And it's inescapable in us a longing for all the wrongs to be made right. Another important distinction, something to tell the difference, is not just this day and that day, but it's his character and your circumstances. In Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 12, as he's embracing God and wrestling with God, he says, you, O Lord, you are the eternal one. You're the holy one. You're the rock. That means you're the unchanging one, eternal and holy and unchanging. That is our God, even in the midst of this. And listen to me. We let our problems frame our God instead of letting our God frame our problems. So what are your circumstances? For some of us, it's hard. It's cancer. It's a teenager being pregnant. It's a spouse filing for divorce. It's someone you love and trusted being found out. It's your hope for a raise, yet you're given a pink slip. And those situations, can we just nod in agreement? Like those situations, they're real. They're real around the room. They're real. They're a part of us. If you're young and hadn't lived, just hold on. Like these are real circumstances. So I, just like the writers of Scripture, are not standing forth here and saying that they're not real. Those are very real circumstances but we live low and more often than not we let our problems and our circumstances frame our God those are true those are true in some of you maybe I didn't mention something about you today and your circumstance but you know you're sitting there and you're listening to me and you're like man here's my situation here's my circumstance and it is true but do not let the truth of your circumstance frame and shape what is true about the character of God. He's the eternal one. He's the holy one. He's the one who doesn't change. A third distinction I want us to make that we need to make is not just a distinction between this day and that day, between his character and your circumstances, but it's between doubt and unbelief. Hear me, doubt, doubt, is compelled toward God. Doubt questions, it asks, it debates, it wants to know, but it it compels itself toward God. Unbelief moves away, it abandons God, it walks 
away. A few weeks ago, Daniel Wagner, our student pastor, preached on the rich young ruler. And we see in this gospel story, a story Jesus told about a man who he told to sell all of his possessions and give to the poor. And what did the the parable to teach us that this man went away sad he left he left in sadness but really he left in unbelief he didn't question Jesus to clarify what he really meant he didn't wrestle with it at all he just walked away and that's what unbelief does compare with me the rich young ruler with a demon possessed boy Mark chapter 9 and verse 24 immediately the boy's father exclaimed look I think it's in every heart I do believe but help me overcome my unbelief. Unbelief abandons God. It moves away from Him and shuts down the questions. No wrestling with God, certainly no embracing of God. But doubt is different. It questions, it argues. Have you ever argued with God? You need to. You're not thinking. Your prayers aren't sincere. You're not grappling with the world in which you live. To question and to argue, it is healthy. One of my favorite writers who shed a lot of light and helped me grow and nourish my faith, he has taught me that doubt, it's like ants in your pants. Think about it for a second. Being silly, I know, but if you're at a picnic sitting on a bench, you're outdoors uh, eating a sandwich, drinking some McAllister sweet tea, and you get some ants in your pants, what are you going to do? You're going to slap your pants. Some of you are going to cuss, right? Okay, You're going to slap your pants. You're going to say something you shouldn't. You're going to get up, and you're going to what? You're going to take notice. You're going to take notice because ants are in your pants, and doubts can do that for us. you got to slap. You get up, and you notice, and you say, why? Why am I having these doubts? God, why are you doing what you're doing or not doing what you're doing? Remember, for Nahum the prophet, how can God love and judge? For Habakkuk, how can God love and not judge? God, why are you sitting idly by? How long? And doubts can be good. I'm your pastor. I love you. I know some of you very well. And I'm telling you, doubts can be so good because it moves you to God. And your faith will never be credible and fresh and substantive and real unless you have doubts. But here's the trick. Take them to God. Take them to God. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Is that not one of the most common prayers that we ought to pray? I believe, but help my unbelief. There's a fourth distinction, fourth difference that we need to make. Beyond this life or this day and that day, beyond his character and your circumstances, beyond doubt and unbelief, it's complaining and lamenting. Now, if you have a study Bible in front of you and you look down, you'll see in the first chapter of Habakkuk, you'll see that a lot of the study Bibles say Habakkuk's complaint and then later Habakkuk's second complaint. So don't be too literal with these words. I want to draw a distinction for you. But let me ask you, how many of you find it easy to complain? You do. How many of you are sitting next to somebody and they find it easy to complain? It's just easy, isn't it? Not long ago, I'm in a movie theater. I'm standing in line thinking about how good it is to wait there to be able to pay inflated prices for large, unhealthy, unwholesome snacks. 
And as I'm waiting in line, I notice a man, a few people in front of me, is kind of throwing a fit. His voice is raised, his tone is very harsh, and he's taking it out on the pretty young lady selling concessions. And I rolled my eyes. I thought, what's up with this dude? He's just a griper. He's a complainer. And when he walked by me, when his fit was finished and he walked past me, I thought, you know, I'd have just, you know, he had a large bucket of popcorn and a big drink. I thought, I'd have just put my foot out there and trip him. But then I realized Jesus probably wouldn't do that. And I got out there and talked to the young lady, and I learned. I said, man, what's his deal? What's, what's up with that guy? Because I did roll my eye. I did that condescending look where you roll your eyes, you know. And, and so I said to her, what, what's his deal? She said, oh, he was complaining about several things, but mainly that I filled his popcorn bucket too full. It was too full, too overflowing, his rich, buttery popcorn. He may spill some on the way to his seat. And I thought, you know, Jesus probably would have tripped him, Right? I missed, I missed a moment. Is it easy for you? Is it easy for you to complain? On a flight recently, I didn't marvel at the miracle of modern aviation, the miracle of flight. I complained that I had to walk by first class. And first class, uh, some of you ride there, first class had plenty of leg room and they had armrests the size of chairs. And I w- went back to my little cramped coach section. And I looked at Sky Mall magazine with all these inventions of things that everybody needs to have but I can't afford. And I remember just thinking, oh, I'm missing a moment of travel, of being able to go somewhere really cool with some godly pastors and leaders and learn and be nourished and be able to fly back and be with my family. And to fly back within hours, to go coast to, to Mississippi, to this place, in just a few hours. But I wanted to complain. I had a complaining, griping spirit within me. Is it easy? Easy to complain? I know of a man who had a car and instead of selling the car or trading it in, he gave it to his sister who really needed a car. It was worth $10,000 plus. He cleaned it and serviced it and gave it to her and she mumbled a thank you and about a week later she texted him and complained about the taxes. And then, you know, she rides in Jackson, so she eventually had to get a couple of new tires. She complained to him about having to buy tires, not just the taxes. And then the air condition wasn't rolling as cold as it needed to roll, and she complained about that. And this guy said, you know, I, just, I should have just sold it or traded it in. So ungrateful. Such a complainer. And isn't it true about you? There's something in us that just wants to gripe. And for most of us, I say this often because we need this so often in a social media world, but like we complain about first world problems, don't we? Oh, I got home from the grocery store and I just had so much food, it wouldn't fit in the fridge. Oh, this movie has taken so long to download. Oh, I'm so sick of these restaurants that are around work. I go to the same ones. I'm so sick of that. My Apple Watch didn't download the right distance on my run at the beach. It's going to be one of those days. Like we complain about our first world problems. And we live, as one writer said, in a culture of complaint. But hear me. Your God created you in a way to move away from complaining. But towards expressing. And a big difference is, I want to tell you from a horizontal human level so we can get it with God in a vertical level. But have you ever been talked about where someone talked about you instead of talking to you? How painful is that? 
Can you believe that some people do that with the pastor? It's true. There, there are some churches, faraway lands. They, they talk about the pastor, but they won't talk to him. Can you imagine that? I mean, you'll have to imagine. But that happens, doesn't it, in other places? And you know, look, I've truthfully experienced that. And it hurts, doesn't it? it, it it's easy to get bitter and to be resentful because of something has come between the space between you and that person. They made a decision not to talk to you, but to talk about you. And if you've done that or had that done to you, doesn't it hurt? And here's what I love about Habakkuk. Here's what I love about the lamentations in the Scripture. Is that these are women and these are men who are talking to God. And I still believe on November 12th, 2017, that when we talk to God, we're ultimately talking about the one who can do something about every pain and every problem and every situation and circumstance. He's the one. Like, it's worth talking to him. And unbelief moves away from him and talks about him. Complaining moves away and gossips about God. But lamenting is talking directly to him, the one who is on the throne, the one who can do something about it. And into this culture of complaint, into the the grumbling of your spirit, we are invited, we're given a green light to question and to ask and to moan. And the scripture uses that word groan. I've taught this before. Grumbling is bad. That's a sin. Groaning is good. That's his gift to you where you cry out to him from the deep places of your being. Lord, I need you. Lord, I long for you. Be in this situation. The difference between complaining and lamenting. There are two ways, folks, as we round toward home, there are two ways that you can quit complaining. I want to give them to you today. The first way is this. You can quit complaining if you change your external world. You with me? So if you are complaining about not being married, you'll need to get married. If you're married, you'll need to improve your spouse. You'll need to change your spouse so that they will be the kind of person that never generates grounds for complaint. Your boss will need to come up to you and say, what hours do you want to work and how much do you want to get paid? This time of year when traffic thickens and lines get long, you'll be impervious to that. That won't affect you. Everybody you date will need to be cute. Your grades will need to be A's. All your relatives will need to be in therapy. There is a way that you can change and quit complaining, and that is to alter or change your external world, okay? There's another way. Change your internal world. And hear me today. This is what the heroes of the Bible did. Like, this is so good. Are you with me? Like, change your internal world. And the heroes of the Bible, they walked a hard road. But they had the stamina to go the distance. Jacob stayed up all night and wrestled with God. Job went into the ring with the Holy One and went toe-to-toe after being stripped bare of everything he owned, loved, and valued. Martha and Mary stood and they wondered and they questioned Jesus about why he let their brother die and he wasn't there in time. The psalmist questions and argues and debates and lets God have it over and over again. But in each relationship that God has with his people, 
in each of these relationships with these women and these men, we oftentimes see his silence. We, we, we don't see a ready-made remedy for their problem, but he reveals his character. To Jacob, he was the redeemer and keeper. To Job, he was the sovereign ruler over all. To Martha and Mary, he was the resurrection and the life. To the psalmist, he was the fortress and the safety net and the security and the shelter and the deliverer. To Habakkuk, we read it together this morning. He was the eternal one, the holy one. He was the rock, the one who didn't change. Would you bow with me?